I'm Dr. Nicole Birkins, and this is Win the Day with James Whitaker. You're listening to Win the Day with James Whitaker. What we do in life echoes in eternity. Broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, this is the number one podcast to help you win the day every day. Here's your host, James Whitaker. Let's go! Welcome back to Win The Day. If this is your first time here, we sit down with some of the world's true change makers to give you all the tips, tools, and strategies to win the day every day. And today we have a very special surprise in store for you. We're going to sit down with the world's leading holistic child psychologist. And when we say child, we're referring to children of any age from toddlers through to young adults. So if you're a parent right now or soon to be a parent or even working through or trying to understand difficult moments from your own childhood, I have a feeling this might be your favorite episode yet. The quote for today comes from actress Drew Barrymore and says, the best kind of parent you can be is to lead by example. The best kind of parent you can be is to lead by example. As I said, we've got the world's leading holistic child psychologist on the show, and she's an incredibly accomplished individual. Dr. Nicole Birkins is the only doctoral licensed clinical psychologist with advanced degrees in psychology, education, and nutrition. But you might be thinking, well, I'm not going to take advice from anyone who isn't a parent. Well, the good news is that in addition to extraordinary resume, Dr. Nicole is also a mother of not one, not two, not three, but four children. Dr. Nicole has dedicated her 20-plus year career to providing parents with simple, effective, research-based strategies that get to the root of children's attention, anxiety, mood, and behavior challenges so they can reach their highest potential. In a world flooded with parenting information, therapies, and conflicting expert opinions, Dr. Nicole's down-to-earth information and approach inspires thousands of parents to trust their instincts, focus on one step at a time, and never give up hope that they and their child can change for the better. She's built and runs a multidisciplinary evaluation and treatment clinic, is a best-selling author, a published researcher, an award-winning therapist, an in-demand speaker, a media expert, and an experienced mom who is determined to show the world that with healthy foundations in place, every child and family can thrive. In this interview, we're going to go through the biggest mistakes parents make, what parenting style is best, how sugar and processed foods affect cognitive development, what screen time you should give your children and when you should let them have a mobile phone, how to raise strong and resilient children, and a whole lot more. Before we begin, remember that the right bit of inspiration can completely change the trajectory of someone's life. So if there's a friend or loved one who needs to hear this episode, share it with them right now. All right, let's win the day with Dr. Nicole Birkins. Dr. Nicole, great to see you. Thanks so much for coming on the Win the Day show. Thank you so much for having me. Well, a big shout out to our mutual friend, Dr. Michael Bruce, aka The Sleep Doctor, for putting us in touch. I know there's going to be a ton of value out of this episode today. And as a parent, there are so many other people out there who are in the Win the Day group who have been submitting questions. So I have more notes than I think I've ever had for any other episode. So I'm very <laughs> much looking forward to this. Awesome. <laughs> well, what was what was the defining moment that put you on the path that you're on today? Oh, gosh, it's a great question. And there probably were lots of moments. But I would say it goes back to probably even my childhood of always wanting to be a helper, always rooting for the underdog. I remember, um, you know, even being in elementary school and really uh, having a heart for kids who were sort of on the outside of the norm 
um, kind of protecting kids who were bullied, um, wanting to include the kids who were different in some way. Um, and, and so as I think about it, I, I think it really goes back to that. I've always had a heart for, um, for people. And as I went through my you know, educational journey, um, you know, with college and all of that really just got passionate and interested in psychology, educational psychology, child development, had some great experiences working with kids, particularly kids with different kinds of needs and challenges. And um, my career just sort of evolved from there. I love that fusion that you have with your, uh, with basically all the work that you've done. It's incredible. And in my experience of being a parent now for two and a half years, it's, it's amazing that, that kids, they're like the ultimate leveler. It doesn't matter what background or where people come from. It's when you, when you throw kids in the mix, a bit like pets too, everyone can just have this great unifying bond, which I think is so great. And when you see people who are not playing together or they're just not able to experience that sense of fun and joy and love that you see other families have, I can totally see how that would definitely be a, a big career to, to make for you. And you're the only doctoral licensed clinical psychologist with advanced degrees in psychology, education, and nutrition. Three amazing fields. How important is that holistic focus rather than seeing someone who might be a specialist in just one of those fields? I think it's really important to look at people holistically, but particularly, you know, we're talking about children. Um, because most of the time, the focus with kids is on their behavior, their development, what's going well, what's not going well, and just a whole range of behaviors that parents wonder about, get frustrated with, um, particularly if the child has some you know, clear identified needs. But parents in general, like, oh, is this normal for my kid? Is this not? And behaviors are really just the surface level symptom that tells us, hey, there's something deeper going on here. Now, in the case of typically developing kids, it may be something as basic as they just need a little more, you know, one-on-one -on -one time with mom and dad or, or somebody to really kind of tap into, okay, what do you need to communicate with me here? And, and for other kids, it can be um, behaviors are real red flags or underlying, you know, physiological things that are going on that haven't been identified or bigger picture, you know, brain-based or developmental things. So because the behaviors themselves just tell us more about what's going on beneath, we have to be able to look at all the aspects within a child, within their life, within their environment, their relationships, their activities, their food, their sleep, all of these things that play into how they're able to function and how they're feeling. And um, unfortunately, typically in the fields of medicine and mental health, that holistic view is not taken into account. It's very much focused on what are those surface level symptoms and then an intervention that's targeted at stopping or reducing that. And while that can be a band-aid, it doesn't get to the root of how do we actually address these things for kids? How do we help kids really thrive and become the best people that they can be. And that's why I think that looking at all those pieces, and, and I have you know, the ability to take a unique integrated perspective on that because my first career was in early childhood education, special education, child development. Then I became a clinical psychologist and added all of that knowledge and all those tools into the mix but then really started to see these commonalities in my patients, in the families I was working with of kids who had these brain-based neurodevelopmental or behavioral kinds of issues, but 
but also had histories of lots of physical things going on. And, and it hit me one day, like this can't be a coincidence, like kids with really picky diets or chronic ear infections or chronic strep throat or chronic constipation. And I started looking into the research literature and was like, wow, there's a lot here about the connection between chronic physiological health issues and mental health and behavioral things in kids. I was a parent at that time myself and seeing some of those connections in two of my own children. And that really led me to getting the additional degree in nutrition and integrative health to pull those pieces into to better help the people that I was serving at my clinic, but also for my myself, my own personal kids, um, friends and family members. And that really, I think it sort of sealed the deal for me of that trifecta of things, um, you know, in addition to being a parent myself, which I think is helpful for people to know. It's easy for professionals to talk about stuff with parenting, but if you're not in the trenches doing it, that's sort of a whole nother thing. So to me, those four pieces of, you know, education and child development, the psychology, the physiological health and nutrition, and then being a mom myself, it allows me to really understand and look at what's going on with kids and families in an important way. And how refreshing to hear that holistic approach versus going and being told, here is a pill that you then have to take for the rest of your life to fix that, which is just something that I, I struggle with, particularly in America, with, with how big the pharmaceutical culture uh, is over here. What's the number one reason that people come and see you professionally? Typically, it's kids are having behavioral challenges, whether it's inattention, hyperactivity, those kinds of things. They're getting into trouble in school or they can't focus. Um, They're not listening, not, you know, parents are frustrated with them. They're having trouble getting along with other kids. Those tend to be, um, you know, the reasons people come to the clinic. I tend to now um, see kids, teens, young adults with more severe, really longer term mental health and developmental needs where parents have been to lots of people in lots of places They're on lots of medications. They're not getting better. And at this point in my career, um, those cases are really interesting to me to, you know, peel back the layers to to dig into what's really going on and to help these, these kids and these individuals actually get better. But overall, it's stuff that falls in that whole behavioral realm. My kid's not behaving or managing things in a way that's conducive to them learning, to them developing relationships. And parents go, I've read all the books. I've you know, looked at all the Pinterest accounts, I, you know, tried all the, you know, one, two, three strategies or whatever, and it's not working. And what do I do? <laughs> so they're at the end of the tether when they get to you, they really, really want that. I just want the result. I'll do whatever it takes. <laughs> That's right. Is, out of all the people you've worked with, is there a particular transformation that you're most proud of? Oh my goodness. There's so, there's so many. Um, one, one little girl is coming to mind. Um, and we could spend the hour talking about interesting cases. One little girl's coming to mind. She's nine now. Um, she was placed in foster care with her now adoptive mom out of the very abusive, lots of early trauma, lots of exposure to things that no young child should be exposed to. And we know that those kinds of things can have a very, very detrimental effect on kids' physical development, as well as their brain development and their their development in general and their functioning. And a lot of those kids who come out of early trauma situations end up with a lot of challenges. So mom had, you know, for the first um, five years that she had this this child in her home, 
um, you know, was a very educated mom, was very, you know, reading all the strategies, doing all the things, but this child was really struggling, very, very aggressive behaviors, um, putting holes in walls, uh, screaming a lot of the time, going to school and getting sent home all the time. Teachers saying, you know, we don't know what to do with her. She wasn't learning well. Um, mom diligently sought out all the types of care that she was told to, you know, went to the pediatrician, got sent to a psychiatrist. The child spent a few years on just a roller coaster of different kinds of medication, most of which made her situation much worse. Um, mom was in the counseling, doing the parent groups, doing all the things, and her child wasn't getting better. And she had read something about food intolerances and, and, you know, maybe some more holistic health kinds of things. And so she reached out to me and to make a long story short over the time that we worked together, quickly identified that this child was having a lot of underlying physiological issues. She had chronic um, urinary tract infections that no matter how much they medicated, weren't going away. She was eating carbs and sugar like crazy, like just couldn't get enough. Mom would have to lock the cupboards did some lab work on her, um, spent some time with her. And um, really what started to shift things was number one, getting her off of the psychiatric drugs that were doing more harm than good, which was not all of them, but was a good portion of them that mom had noticed since she started on them was just escalating the behavior out of control. So we worked with her prescribers to come off of those um, took her off of gluten completely because testing showed that while she wasn't celiac, she was not tolerating that well, added some um, good, strong uh, micronutrient supplements in for her, again, based on her symptoms in labs. Within three days of removing gluten from this child's diet, which mom thought would be impossible to do based on what she was eating, Mom emailed me and said, I cannot believe the difference in this kit. And we continued to make changes and to dig into things, but really for this child, dealing with some of the underlying physiological things allowed her nervous system, her brain, her body to stabilize enough where it took the intense behaviors, the inattention, all of those problems down to the point where it was much more manageable for her, for mom, and then we could utilize other approaches in the realms of counseling and relational therapies and starting to dig into dealing with the trauma that she had experienced, giving mom, you know, more effective parenting tools. And those things were able to work and get consistent movement forward because this child's body and brain were better supported to be in a place where she could benefit from those. So um, so that's just one example. And it's it's probably two years later now. And she had a wonderful year in school this last year. That's not to say that she doesn't still have um, some challenges, but she doesn't get sent home anymore. Um, she's feeling good about herself. She's engaged in activities. The stress level at home has come down. Mom is feeling so much better. Um, so that's just one example of the kinds of transformations that we see for kids when we delve into what's really going on. Instead of saying, here's your three prescriptions and mom, you should put her on a sticker chart to try to encourage good behavior and, you know, try to get the school to do something and send her to counseling. Those things all sometimes work, but when we're not getting to the root of it, they don't work very well and they don't get us the kind of lasting change that, that we want. 
Holistic in practice. Yeah, I can't imagine just the life-changing uh, environment that would be for, for that household. So thank you so much for saying that, uh, for sharing that rather. Uh, there's an old saying, experience isn't the uh, best teacher, it's the only teacher. You mentioned before that you're a parent now, you're a mother of four children, and I think being a parent with only one child, uh, being a parent is about as comprehensive of a learning experience as I think as someone can, can go through. How did becoming a parent of four children of your own shape your clinical work? It, it shaped it a lot. And I think I had the benefit. I started having children pretty young, um, shortly after I finished college. And so I was sort of in the trenches as a mom while I was, you know, starting my career and working with kids and working with families. And I think that was so valuable because, you know, as, as I said earlier, it's really easy to tell a parent well, you just need to do this or, you know, just be consistent or, you know, say this or handle it that way. But when you're in it, you start to realize that it actually is a lot more complicated than that. First of all, that every child is somewhat different. Um, Second of all, that as parents, we have our own stressors, needs, issues, things that we bring into the mix. Um, There's just a lot of practicalities around that, that when you're doing it when you're actually parenting, you realize, oh yeah, this isn't so simple. And, you know, it's easy to say, you know, here's the tools, but it's a whole nother thing to help people figure out how to overcome the obstacles to implementing those things, which is, I think, true for anyone who works with people in any capacity, whether we're talking about, you know, business consultants or, you know, managers at at a corporation or teachers or, you know, working with families. The real challenge of it is in helping people to actually put things into practice. And that means understanding the dynamics of who they are, of their environment, and helping them think about what obstacles are you likely to run into and how do we make this work for you and for your kid, the customization of that. And so I think being in it and doing it with four kids of my own, my kids are, um, there's six years between my oldest and my youngest. So I had them, you know, all close. And it just, it gave me a much more realistic viewpoint and a lot of empathy for what families are dealing with, for what parents are going through, and for the challenges of actually putting these things into practice. Because as you said, parenting is sort of the great equalizer. And that's true. I mean, I do this stuff for a living. I teach about this. I you know, work with families. And I still screw up. And I still have moments with my kids where it's like, oh, that probably was not the best way to handle that. And so I think that's just important for people to know too, that you know, none of us has it all down and none of us is perfect. And that's a completely unattainable goal. And all of us are a work in progress as human beings, as well as in our parenting. And I think what I have discovered both through my work with families, but also now with my oldest being almost 22, um, is they, they still come out okay. Even though we don't hit the mark all of the time, even though um, you know we're not perfect, um, if we keep trying, if we keep progressing, um, it, it all works out. And I think that's a reassuring thing for parents to know. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I love that. I think that's a very, very important reminder because that parenting journey can be so stressful. There was even one time, and on the advice that you mentioned before, we went and spoke to our pediatrician about our daughter who was going through a throw. First of all, it was very difficult to get her into the high chair to eat in the first place. And then whatever food was around that she would throw that and the pediatrician would just say, oh, 
you just take her out of that environment and move her to like a different room. But that was almost like an insurmountable thing. But what you talk about is having that awareness of the environment, all of those different factors to be able to provide a personalized plan to getting a great result where everyone is is happy and, and productive. Yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> And you've, you've dedicated your more than 20-year career now to providing parents with simple, effective, research-based strategies that get to the root of children's attention, anxiety, mood, and behavior challenges so they can reach their highest potential. If you had to break it down, what are the most powerful tips you've got to help parents raise strong and resilient children? Yeah, um, that's there's so many pieces we could talk about, but some of the core tools or areas that I encourage parents to think about. The first is to be aware, again, as I said, that behaviors are just the surface level. It's just the red flag. It says, hey, there's an unmet need here. There's a skill that needs to be developed. There's something here that needs to be addressed. And when we can get curious as the parent or adult it shifts everything in terms of our amount of empathy for the child and how we approach it. If we just view a child's behavior as you're being naughty, you know what you're supposed to do and you're refusing to do it, you woke up today determined to make my life miserable, then that really is reflected in how we relate and respond and the strategies that we use. And often that just leads to continued power struggles, to you know getting nowhere with it. So I think our perspective as parents and our willingness to be curious about what's going on is a key foundation um, for change with any kid. And I, and I think that fits within the idea that the parent-child relationship is so key. Again, whether we're talking about our kids who are typically developing or we're talking about a child with neurodevelopmental issues like autism or ADHD, or we're talking about kids maybe with significant behavioral disorders or mental health diagnoses, doesn't matter. Parent-child relationship is key and foundational. And that doesn't mean that parents cause their kids problems, not at all. But it does mean that that relationship is the foundation for the child being able to progress and grow. So we need to be willing to learn the types of communication that are going to be more effective. We need to be willing to understand um, specific tools for how to respond to some of the behaviors, how we might be contributing based on our emotion, stress levels to what's going on, how to set up the environment. So we have to be willing to look at ourselves and learn some tools because kids don't come with instruction manuals. So we can't be expected to know this right out of the gate, you know? So I think that piece, understanding the importance of parent-child relationship. And the stance that we take as parents with our own mindset and getting curious is key. I think also the physical health piece is key. That if your child is struggling with aspects of their behavior, their learning, their communication, their socialization, um, you know, their ability to communicate, whatever it may be, understanding that everything that goes on in the body is directly connected to what goes on in the brain. Too often we think about it, and unfortunately, the fields of medicine and mental health have perpetuated this, that everything from here down, that's physical health, and everything from here up, that's mental health, and neither shall the two mix. We don't, you know, those are two separate things. And of course, it's ridiculous, right? Because the brain and the body literally are completely interconnected. And so for parents to understand that when there are things going on in your child's body, 
that has a huge impact on how they're develop, how their brain is developing, how they're functioning on their behavior. So for example, a child who's constipated, chronically constipated, you might think, well, that's a GI problem. That's, you know, that's a, that, that has nothing to do with their brain or behavior. It has everything to do with it. Because guess what? If they're not having bowel movements regularly, they're not detoxifying. Kids that aren't detoxifying and getting toxins out, that can build up and create brain-related issues. Also, just from a discomfort perspective, how on top of our game are any of us if we're experiencing GI issues, right? So a kid who's chronically constipated and having discomfort, maybe even pain, anxiety around that, that's going to impact a lot of their ability to focus, to, you know, uh, regulate their emotions and their behavior and, you know, what they eat. That's a big part of that, that understanding that the things that we feed our kids play a huge role, not only in their physical growth and development, but in their brain development and their mental health. So if our kids are eating diets primarily high in sugars, artificial ingredients, chemicals, simple carbs, things like that, know that not only does that have an effect on their weight and their physical health and growth patterns, but the research clearly shows it has an impact on their emotional and behavioral regulation, on developing the pathways and the neural connections for being able to focus and attend and learn and, and lots more. So these, these pieces are connected physically to, to what's going on in the brain. And that includes things like movement. You know, that's another core of what I talked about, making sure kids are getting enough movement, not overdoing the screen time movement. So key. Um, and so sleep is another one, huge one that's overlooked. So many kids aren't sleeping well, if they're not sleeping well, they're not going to have good regulated behavior the next day. It's going to impact their ability um, to learn, to focus, to attend. So I think again, for parents to understand that these physiological foundations, these lifestyle pieces are not just related to their physical health, but play a very key role in their brain function and in their behavior. And the alternative to that curiosity from parents is that the parents get frustrated, the kids get frustrated, and it's just a horrible situation for, for everyone. And now everyone has a platform to be able to broadcast messages. People can claim that they're experts and get a lot of misinformation out there. Out of all the misinformation that you've seen, of which I'm sure there is an absolute ton, what's the most damaging parenting tip you see that people tend to believe? Um. I'll say two of the most damaging things uh, from the big picture perspective, and then I'll do a tip. So one of the da most damaging messages that's perpetuated out there, it's a myth really um, in the field of children and particularly child mental health, um, is that if a child is diagnosed with something, let's say ADHD, let's say depression, anxiety, whatever it might be, that that is a life sentence. Well, this is just genetic. This is how it is. There's nothing you can do about it. and you know, give them some medication, try to get them some counseling, put them in school, um, you know, but this, this is kind of how it is. And the child needs to realize that, you know, this is a lifelong uh, condition. And I think that is very, very damaging because first of all, um, there's so many myths that play into that that are not research-based, but also it can be very defining for all children um, when they're told, especially at an early age, well, this is something that's wrong with you. You are broken. You have this thing. There's nothing you can do. Talk about 
you know, having a child develop with no sense of self-efficacy, no sense of having gifts and strengths to offer and just being labeled as, well, you have a problem and guess what? It's going to be here forever. Very damaging for parents too, to get that message that, well, you know, you can try some of these things, but this is something that you're going to deal with. Now, that doesn't mean that some kids don't struggle with things throughout their lifetime. But this idea that you get your kid diagnosed, and then this is forever sort of who this kid is. I've seen so many young adults who talk about how damaging that was in their earlier years for how they saw themselves, what they believed they were capable of, what people expected of them. So I think that's a big picture thing that I see perpetuated out there that's just not accurate. And from a tip standpoint, uh, boy, there's so many. But one of the things that I think is really problematic um, in tips that parents are given around behavior is that we should respond in um, a punishing way in order for them to learn. And you know, you go, you, the, the people say, "Well, how are they going to grow up to be responsible and you know manage anything if I don't you know punish them in this way or teach them that these things aren't okay?" Well, you can punish your kids. They're certainly, that's been done throughout history. A lot of us were raised in those kinds of environments. But while you will probably, for most kids, get compliance, they will learn to be afraid of you or they will learn to comply because they don't want to lose certain privileges or whatever. It damages the relationship that we have with our kids. And ultimately, it doesn't get to the root of what's going on and teach them how to think about solving the problems that they engage in, how to think about expressing their needs in better ways. It sort of shuts down all of that. And so those very behavioral compliance-based, punishment-based types of um, ways of approaching that stuff, it's just not effective. And we know that there are much better research-based ways that we can approach those things with kids. You mentioned labels there. That was one of the big questions that I wanted to to ask you about because the in my experience the wrong label can be used as a crutch to completely destroy someone's potential for the rest of their life. But using a label even if it's a false label done in a positive way, is that a responsible and a beneficial thing to do and if so are there any labels that parents should be uh, should be using because ultimately what that can do is manifest much greater outcomes than the person was initially credited for from a potential perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the labels are, you know, there's so much controversy around that and labels are really, um, the, the, the primary purposes of diagnostic labels are to meet needs within the healthcare system of coding appointments, getting reimbursement, insurance things within the school system of getting kids services. So those are really the reasons that they exist, but there's some benefit and, and some people will passionately argue that getting a label was so helpful to them because it helped them find community with other people having similar kinds of issues. So there certainly can be benefits to that. There can also be, as we talked about, real downfalls. And it's important to remember that when we're talking about the realm of mental health kinds of issues, brain-based types of issues for children and adults, almost across the board, those are subjective diagnoses and labels. We do not have objective ways, like in medicine, they can give you certain blood tests and say, yep, you have type 2 diabetes. That's an objective thing. It's very different in mental health. And so you could bring a child with their symptoms they're exhibiting to 10 different clinicians and feasibly get several different labels and interpretations based on 
the subjective opinion of that clinician of what's going on there. And that happens to a lot of parents where their child gets diagnosed with one thing. And then it's another thing. It's another thing. And before you know it, they're going, oh my goodness, my kid has six different problems. And that kid is going, look at all of these things. Like, look how bad I am. Look at how many problems I have. And so I prefer, and this makes me a somewhat unusual clinical psychologist because in clinical psychology, the the focus is very much on evaluation, diagnosis. Um, I really don't like to label kids unless there's a compelling reason to do so. If there is a need for that for um, insurance, for school services, or like Department of of Health and Human Services kinds of um, opportunities, or I think that it's really going to be helpful for the family to find a community of support, then I will do that. But really, our goal should be understanding the unique strengths and challenges of each child and helping to put together a plan that's going to improve their quality of life, support the family, and move them towards their best potential. To me, that should be the goal for kids and adults in the realm of what we do in mental health. Not, you know, well, get on a list, wait and have some testing and evaluation done, then get your diagnosis, then wade through, you know, a whole list of things that you could go and try to do. No, we should be getting to know who is this kid really? What is this kid really about? And as much a focus on their strengths and the goodness that they bring to the table, as we focus on the challenges and the symptoms they're exhibiting and helping parents and kids to really understand that. And I always say to parents, when I, when I do give a label or a diagnosis, before I even do that, I say, it's really important that you know that regardless of what I'm about to tell you and the label and the diagnosis we're going to talk about, your child is still the same amazing, wonderful, beautiful, talented human being they were when you walked into my office today. Giving you a label or a diagnosis doesn't change any of that. And I really try to frame that in a way that is empowering and uses the label more as just some knowledge and maybe an anchor for getting services and support and doesn't send the child and the parent into a realm of defining who this kid is and what their potential and their future is going to be based on that. You know, that's so inspiring. I'm sure people who are watching this or listening to this podcast are going to be feeling really empowered themselves about what you've just shared there. So thank you. Uh, when our daughter was born, I, I always heard about these people who, you know, at the minute they have to rush home to put their kids to to sleep, to align to some sleep schedule. And I always just felt that was a little bit, and that I know that works really well for a lot of people. But the one big focus to me when our daughter was born, I wanted her to get used to three things, travel, noise, and people, because I'm from Australia. We live in America. There's going to be a lot of travel. That was obviously pre-pandemic. Uh, how quickly should we expose children to discomfort and adversity so they can be adaptable and resilient? Well, it's interesting because discomfort um, is really in the experience of, of the person who's going through it, right? What, what I might find uh, uncomfortable or overwhelming could be very different from you. And the same can be true for us, even from infancy onward, right? You see some babies who seem to have nervous systems that are much more tolerant of noise and activity and, you know, all of those kinds of things. And then we have some babies with much more sensitive nervous systems who seem to not do as well. So I think it really comes to 
observing the child we have and saying what seems um, to work well for this child. And if there are, if, if it is a, a child with a sensitive nervous system where you notice from early on, wow, you know, uh, lots of activity or having a busier schedule or um, just, you know, a busier environment or more people around seems to be more overwhelming, then I think you can work at slowly exposing to more and more of that through that first year, through the toddler years to get them comfortable and acclimated. What doesn't work is to take a young child with a sensitive nervous system and say, well, you're going to have to get used to it. So jumping in the pool, we go, and we're just going to do all kinds of, you know, loud, busy, uh, overwhelming things so that you can get used to it. That will tend to have the child shut down become, you know, um, even fearful of those kinds of situations. So I think if you have a child who's more sensitive, you, you ease them into that. And the key there, as with anything with our kids, is the modeling that we provide. So to realize that if we are in a situation and feeling stressed and tense and our face looks like we're, you know, worried or upset or whatever, kids from infancy on feed off of that and they go, oh, oh, dad looks really stressed and nervous. And then that fuels that in them. So if we want our kids to get used to certain types of situations, then we need to feel an ease about it. And we need to send the message that, hey, we're cool with this. This is comfortable. Like we can manage this. This is good. And that's such a good rule of thumb for everything with our kids is they pick up on they are such um, such attuned little people and they pick up on so much in our nonverbal communication and in the energy that we put out. So we need to we need to be conscientious about that. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing how much they absorb, isn't it? <laughs> I'm constantly surprised. Yeah. Uh, in your book, Life Will Get Better, you mentioned that parents are the most valuable resource children have. Parents are the most valuable resource children have. That was a, I really loved that one. To what extent... Does the parenting style you use affect your child's personality? And is there a particular parenting style that's best? It's a great question. There's been a lot of research done on this. Um, I will say in the big picture, there are um, several styles that can work depending on the child, the culture, the parent. So I certainly don't want to send the message um, that there is only one way to parent. No, there are lots of approaches and ways to parent. When we think about parenting style, though, the research has really been done that's identified four typical styles of parenting. There's um, the authoritarian style, which is very much the sort of drill sergeant, my way or the highway, you know, do it or else, uh, a lot of directedness from the parent. Um, so there's a lot of expectation from an authoritarian parent, but not a lot of warmth or support. Okay. Then we have permissive parents who there's a lot of warmth and support and not so many expectations. So these are the parents who are can be thought of maybe more as a friend to their child or are, are trying to be a friend as opposed to setting limits. And they tend to uh, be pushovers or allow kids to dictate what's going to happen. Um, so that's another style. Uh, then we have the third style, um, which is sort of the uninvolved parent. This is this not too many parents fall in this category, but these are parents that don't have expectations 
and also aren't warm and loving. These are the detached parents, the sort of you're on your own kid. I'm not really engaged or involved. Um, that's that style. All three of those styles have been shown to not be as effective as the fourth style, which is authoritative parenting. And I wish we would have a different name because authoritarian and authoritative sound so similar, but authoritative parents have a great balance of expectations for their kids, but they're also warm and loving and engaged. So that, you know, can sound like instead of the authoritarian parent who is like, do your homework and I don't want to hear any complaining, you know, you better not talk back to me about it. That's got an expectation, but there's not warmth there. The authoritative parent could say, oh, I get it. Homework stinks. You're so tired from the day. You really don't want to do it. I totally understand. Tell you what, let's figure out a plan. How would it work for you to take, you know, a 10 minute break, have a snack, maybe play outside for a little bit, and then we'll come in and tackle getting the homework done. So that's that balance, right? Of you're still expected to do your homework. I'm not going to be permissive and let you off the hook and say, oh, you're sad. You don't want to do your homework. It's okay. Don't worry about it. Right. But it's I expect you to do it, but I'm willing to work with you to understand your feelings, to be empathic and supportive and problem solve it. That is the style of parenting that the research shows consistently produces the most positive outcomes for kids. Mm, yeah, that's fantastic. I, I love that. And in your in your book, you mention how the gut is now referred to as the second brain, talking about the nutrition stuff here, which of course is critically important for a variety of factors. What are the biggest mistakes that parents make from a nutrition perspective with their children? Mm -hmm. Yeah, the gut is the second brain. I don't know, we could almost even make an argument at this point with all the preponderance of research that the gut and the brain are pretty on par. We like to think that as sophisticated, cognitively advanced you know, human beings that we are, that, oh, we have this big brain that's so in charge. And the reality is that actually the trillions of microorganisms that live in our gut and on and around us really do run most of the show, it turns out. Um, but the mistakes that we make then from a nutrition standpoint, not understanding how important what we eat, uh, the, the impact of what we eat on the health of our gut and our microbiome. Um, you know, we feed kids a lot of processed foods um, that tend to be high in sugar, that tend to have uh, chemicals like preservatives, artificial dyes, um, all kinds of chemical sweeteners and things like that. Even that the so-called natural flavors, aren't they? Yes, the first time I yeah. found out that natural flavors aren't so natural or good for you, I was blown away. That's right. Everything. It's weird. It's, it's almost impossible for parents, unless you have training and extra knowledge in this, to go to the grocery store and even figure out what's good, what's not because of all of the package right now with natural. Well, I look at the ingredient labels on lots of things labeled natural, and I'm like, there's several things I wouldn't call natural. But yeah, it's confusing for parents. But kids are eating and drinking more chemicals than ever before. And what we've seen as these chemicals, these preservatives, these sweeteners, these dyes, as they've become more mainstream in the foods that people are eating, particularly kids over the last couple of generations, we've seen right along with that a massive increase in not only things like obesity, 
you know, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, type two diabetes, which guess what? We never used to see those things in children. You know, pediatricians 50 years ago, hundred years ago would go their entire career and never see a kid with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, type two diabetes. It's rampant now, but also the brain-based issues. You know, ADHD is growing at astronomical levels. Almost 12% of U.S. kids are diagnosed or medicated for ADHD. We've got huge um, increases in the number of kids diagnosed with autism spectrum disorders, with learning problems, with mood issues, with anxiety. So as we've seen our food dramatically change over the last couple of generations, we've also seen a major increase in the number of chronic physical, but also chronic mental health kinds of issues. And, you know, the data is clear that there's a connection there. So that's, that's a mistake that well-meaning parents make of, oh, these are kid foods. These are things labeled for kids. These are things that are on restaurant menus. Like these are things that are good. My kid likes them. Um, without understanding how these less nutrient-dense foods are negatively impacting their kids. So sugar's a big one, chemicals are a big one. Even on a very basic level, kids um, not having any produce in their diet, uh, fruits and vegetables, that is not uncommon at all for me to have a child come into the clinic who, when parents fill out a three-day, you know, diet record or check off, you know, what are the categories of foods in your child's diet? We see kids all the time with not a single fruit or vegetable in their diet. If they do, it's like, you know, a fruit snack or maybe, you know, a berry flavored popsicle or something like that. Um, so the nutrient density isn't there in our kids' diets. And where that becomes problematic is not only does it impact, uh, you know, the, the gut and, you know, being able to digest and have good bowel movements, but all those bugs, that whole microorganisms, all those microorganisms, that microbiome is negatively impacted when we're not eating nutrient-dense food. And then that has a negative impact on our brain. And food is information. So if you're giving your child, you know, let's say an apple, that apple contains all kinds of nutrients that provide information and the building blocks that your child's body needs for proper brain and body function. Contrast that with maybe, you know, an artificially flavored sugar added apple juice. Well, they're both technically apple, right? Apple flavor, but that juice doesn't contain nearly the amounts or the types of information or the building blocks that your child needs. So I think just the awareness around that, that food provides the critical building blocks for your child's body, for your child's brain, and looking at how can we get more of those building blocks coming in through the food a child is eating. It's so, so critical. And screen time is a hot topic right now. I know you've spoken about this extensively, not yet today, but I'm hoping we can get into some of that now. Parents, I mean, it's it's very stressful being a parent, super busy with just the chaos of regular life. And if you are a single parent or you've got two working parents, obviously it's a lot of stress and chaos for that household. Giving a kid a device, it is like a magnet how much they just gravitate towards these things, uh, which of course then greatly reduces the stress for the parents, but at what cost for the, the child's development. So when should parents start incorporating mobile devices into a, a child's life? And how do you balance that being a stress reliever for the parent with it being potentially damaging for the kids? Mm -hmm. Yeah, 
great topic. And this is on parents' minds so much, especially with the pandemic. And we know that kids were already spending a huge amount of time on screens and the pandemic only escalated that even more. Um, and, you know, I, I would argue that, yes, while in some ways it's a stress reliever for parents in the immediate short term, ultimately overuse of screens creates much, much bigger long-term stressors because you have more irritable kids, kids who don't know what to do when they don't have their devices. And that creates a lot of stress for parents. So um, I think overuse of devices is a problem for kids and, and for parents. And what... What the research shows and what the recommendations are from the major groups that have looked at this and and have come out with recommendations, the American Academy of Pediatrics being the primary group that has really done that, is that children under the age of two years should not be using these devices. The exception is to use it, let's say, you know, to FaceTime with a grandparent who is at a distance or a parent who's out of town. I think during the pandemic, that was so relevant. We've got an entire group of kids who were born during the pandemic who have never met some of their family members, but Zoom and FaceTime have provided a way for them to do that. So that is the kind of exposure that's recommended for kids at that range and nothing more than that. And always, if they're going to be doing something, that it's with a parent, not sitting there passively taking something in. So those are the recommendations. And then when we get to the ages of two to five, the recommendation is no more than two hours a day. And I would argue that even two hours is a lot for kids, toddlers through kindergarten age. Um, But the recommendation is only developmentally appropriate, high quality programming in short bursts, not two hours all at once. And again, with a parent, caregiver, or an adult, who can help engage around the content. There's a big difference for a child, let's say a three-year-old, you know, uh, watching a show on their own versus sitting with mom or dad or a caregiver and having that caregiver engage in conversation. Oh, look at that. Oh, you know, I saw that. What do you think is happening there? And exposing them to language and relationship around that. So that's the recommendation there. And then from school age on up, There used to be time recommendations and that has shifted. And I think that that's wise because in today's world where kids get a lot of um, required screen time through their schooling, it doesn't make sense anymore to say that school-age children should be limited to two hours a day of use. Well, they can be in school and already exceed that before they even come home. So now how we think about that for school-age children, for teenagers, is that we want to prioritize non-screen time activities, which means that we want them to be getting in their educational uh, work and and opportunities, physical movement, um, extracurricular activities, chores, uh, time with friends and family in, in real life. Those are the kinds of things that we want to prioritize throughout the day. And then the other time can be used on screens. And that's a more flexible way of thinking about that and helps families to think about, um, do we have a balance? Is my 12-year-old spending all of the time that they're not in school glued to their device? Or have we set some priorities around making sure that they're getting movement and spending time you know, with their friends and helping out around the house. And so I think it's a more flexible and doable um, way of, of thinking about screen time for kids. 
I've got to ask, Baby Shark now has more views than people on the planet. Is there a subliminal formula they have? I mean, it is incredible to see how much kids love Baby Shark. What is the deal? Okay, yes, that one. And like Coco Melon is another like huge one. I know you have a young, you you know. I know them all. Yeah, I have right. a special so Spotify here- playlist called Coco Melon just for that. <laughs> Here's the deal, because as adults, we go, what in the world? Like, what is this about? So young children, babies, toddlers, preschoolers, young children thrive on repetition. They thrive, The brain is a pattern seeker. And when you think about it, babies come into the world, they're constantly trying to figure out the world by figuring out patterns. And so repetition is really um, compelling and appealing and, and important for kids at those ages. So the repetitive songs, the repetitive sort of way that the episodes are laid out, um, the repetitive characters. So that's a big one. Drives us as adults crazy, right? You get those songs locked in your brain. You can't get them out. I made um, the decision to myself that I have to always like it. That was it. Otherwise, it right. would destroy my life. So that's that was right. a conscious decision. Every time I hear it, I have to start singing. Otherwise, it would drive me crazy. That's right. Because it does. It gets locked in. So there's a repetition. There's also most of these programs, they tend to be simple, big characters, big like Coco Melon, big eyes, big faces. Babies, toddlers, preschoolers, they gravitate towards that. They're able to process it, make sense of it. It's not overwhelming to them. Um, sort of the sing-songy voices, the simplicity of the characters, the colors, the, the brightness, those kinds of things, those are all meant to be very compelling to the brains of young children. Now, they certainly have hit the mark with that, right? Um, but we could ask the question like, Okay, that's great. They have figured out the formula to really get little kids locked into this. But what are the downfalls of that, right? Some parents go, oh, yeah, my kid will sit there for four hours. And, you know, okay, but that's not good. So while I certainly am not going to tell a parent, having been there myself, I mean, of course, my kids were babies before all these things um, existed. We didn't have tablets and all of that. But, you know, I'm not going to tell a parent that it's unacceptable, to put your young child, your baby um, in a safe space in front of, you know, a program or something that's appropriate with music for 30 minutes while you try to get a shower and maybe eat yourself. Far be it from me because I've been there and I know that's the reality. But to not make that the norm and to not make it that every time you need a break or need to be doing something else that you're using the computer, the tablet, the TV, the whatever, as a way to capture their attention and babysit them. It's really important for kids, even from, you know, the the first year of life on to have the experience of not constantly having external stimulation, because while they like that and it keeps them engaged and, you know, they like that, that passive stimulation, it doesn't allow for the development of the pathways in the brain for problem solving, for curiosity, for creativity, for critical thinking, for figuring out how do I self-generate ideas? How do I initiate things? How do I use my own time? And so there is a huge importance that we need to recognize, whether it's placing you know, a a baby um, on the floor with some things, you know, to look at and letting them explore on their own, you know, using their muscles and figuring out how to make their eyes and their hands work together to a toddler 
who we place in a safe area with some blocks and, you know, some puppets and some other things and let them play without us intervening, without stimulation and entertainment to the preschoolers, the early school age kids who I know they complain, I'm bored, there's nothing to do. But being bored is actually really good and important for kids. If your kids are never having opportunities to be bored, you're really missing out on a critical opportunity for them to develop important cognitive skills, emotional and behavioral regulation skills. So this is why we want kids, um, you know, to not have these important opportunities displaced by constant external stimulation from the devices. Yeah, I love that. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. I'm conscious of your time. We do have a few questions I would love to get through. So rather than do our regular win the day rocket round, I thought we could do the win the day community round where we ask some questions from from people in the group. But you let me know at any stage if if you've got to jump off. Uh, I'm I'm good. Let's do it. Awesome. Uh, First one we had uh, from Jason in Australia. How important is a nuclear family setup for a child's development compared to those who have been raised by uh, single parents? What a wonderful question. And I think I just want to reassure everybody out of the gate, regardless of how your family is is put together, that that is not the defining issue and whether children have positive outcomes. Yes, there has been research showing that more of that traditional family unit with two parents, um, that there are some better outcomes associated with that. But there have also been studies showing that children from single parent households can do very well. And I will say in my experience, um, professionally working with families, um, there are a lot more stressors on single parents. Absolutely. But it com- the outcomes you know, really are related much more to who the parent or the parents are, how they're managing things. Um, so certainly there is nothing that says that a child is destined to have problems or worse outcomes if their family unit doesn't look like that traditional nuclear family. We have a question from Tim in Melbourne, Australia. How easy is it for children? Yeah, you're very big in Australia, apparently, Dr. Nicole. <laughs> How how easy is it for children to repress trauma after it's occurred? And how does that typically manifest later in life? We could do a whole episode on child trauma. So let me just say that, first of all, our understanding of trauma has come a long way. It used to be that the thinking about trauma was like trauma with a big T, like major things like abuse or neglect or the death of a parent early in life or something like that. And now we have a much better understanding that trauma exists on a spectrum and really is in how the child experiences challenges and things that come up for them. So um, so that's very helpful that we understand it that way. And lots of things can be emotionally traumatizing for a child that maybe we as adults would look at it and be like, what's the big deal? Um, There's been a lot of research, for example, in the realm of bullying that shows that even early experiences for young kids related to social alienation to bullying can be very traumatizing for a child and have longer term impact. Again, you know, kids will learn how to carry on. Um, In the absence of adult caregivers really tuning into that, exploring that, helping them to learn how to think about that process, the emotions, many of them do repress it. 
And I would be willing to say that the vast majority, if not all of us as adults walking around on the earth today, have some amount of our current functioning, whether it's in our relationships, in our work habits, in how we think about ourselves, in our own you know, self-care behaviors that are rooted somehow in some kind of unresolved early traumas that happened to us. And that's just a part of life. But what we want to do is try to avoid having kids, just repress that, keep the lid on it. Oh, nobody wants to talk about this or, oh, this isn't acceptable. Keep it together. Don't deal with it. And then become adults that have things blow up in their life and have to go to therapy then for years to unpack that. Ideally, we want to be supporting kids in a way that recognizes the challenges they're going through and gives them the support and the tools to be able to process and make sense of that so it doesn't stay locked in there creating problems throughout their lifetime. Uh, Michael in New Jersey asked, what's one piece of advice you would give to a parent who has a child with mental health challenges? Mm. One piece of advice, I would say to realize that you and the relationship that you have with your child and the message that you send to child about your child about who they are and their the great things about them is by far the most important thing um, that you can do for them to know that they are loved, that they are not broken, that the future holds good things for them, that you're going to be there to support them, that a label doesn't define them. Um, I think that whole realm around mindset and our relationship with them is is the key. Uh, Elizabeth in Brisbane, Australia asked, my nine-year-old is so adamant on having a phone when she's 10 or 11. I'm not and hopefully will stay strong until she's 14. Knowing all the stats about children's mental illness and anxiety being exacerbated with phone use and social media, how do you navigate as a parent the peer pressure of not giving your child a phone? And is there a checklist to go through to make sure um, the process of your child getting a phone is not so confronting and, uh, and dangerous for them? Oh, yes. So many parents have this question. So here's the quick answer to that. First of all, good for you for um, deciding that it's an important boundary to set that your child isn't going to have a phone until they get to you know 14. Uh, and I would say that age really depends. What I say is the right age to give a child a smartphone is the age when they are demonstrating enough responsibility, thoughtfulness, ability to handle that in safe, appropriate ways and follow the rules, which for many kids is 14. For some kids, that might be older. Um, so I think it's important to realize that your child is allowed to feel disappointed, upset, frustrated with you for saying no. And that doesn't mean that you are wrong for setting that boundary. So you can empathize. I get it. Your friends have it. It's hard. You want this. And this is what I've decided is safe and appropriate for you. And so this is what we're doing. And I I, I get it. I've been there with all four of my kids, none of whom have gotten smartphones until they started high school. Um, And so I understand how that can be. But ultimately, kids know that you're operating in their best interest. My my children now as young adults fully recognize and they're like, yeah, that my friends who had phones in elementary school and middle school, they were a hot mess and that was not good. And thank you for not doing that, right? So I think holding firm with that, but maybe finding some opportunities. Um, there's a great phone out there now um, from Gab Wireless, G-A-B-B Wireless, um, that looks just like a smartphone 
but only has phone, text, music, doesn't have any internet capabilities, no apps, that can be a wonderful starter phone for kids who you're not ready to unleash the full powers of a smartphone, but maybe because, you know, they're now in middle school and going to sports practice, you want to be able to communicate with them. You know, you want to give them some responsibility to start showing that they can do it. So there's some of that tech out there now. And it's not the old flip phone. So they feel dumb and like everybody's going to make fun of them. It looks like a smartphone. So, you know, technology companies are recognizing that parents are getting more savvy and wanting these options to safely have kids use these devices. So I would look into some things like that. Yeah, sounds great. I'm sure she'll love that. A question from Dasha in Brisbane in Australia. What's the best way to discipline a toddler? I'm sure this is a popular popular question. Is it timeout, rewarding good behavior, etc.? And how can parents introduce boundaries and structure without stifling a child's creativity and independence? Oh, man. I have a lot of uh, videos and posts on social media, on my website, on my podcast around that. So that I would say lots of resources there. The short answer to that question is that punitive discipline, timeouts, punishments, rewards, again, like I said earlier, you may be able to get some compliance, but it sounds like this parent is really looking for more than that, not stifling the creativity, helping to really the child to be able to regulate themselves better and understand more what's happening and preserve that parent-child relationship. So I have a, a saying that I like to use with parents. All feelings are welcome, all behaviors are not. And that is a really good thing to keep in mind in terms of the magic uh, duo of empathizing with our children during challenging moments while also holding firm to boundaries. So that could look like and sounds like, I know you really want another cookie. I get it. You're really mad. You're feeling so disappointed and sad about that. I totally understand that. And we aren't having any more cookies today. And letting the child have their feelings. Who am I to tell my two-year-old or three-year-old they can't be upset about that? You know what? I'm in my 40s and sometimes I get sad that I can't have more cookies, right? Like they're allowed to feel that way. Now, if they start biting, you know, kicking, running around and throwing things, no, I won't let you hurt me. I won't let you damage things. And you scoop them up and you hold on to them tightly and let them know, I get it. You're so upset. I'm going to help you calm down. And you stay with them in a calm, regulated way yourself, which helps their nervous system regulate and settle down, as opposed to saying, you're being naughty. I can't believe you did that. I'm putting you in your room now until you settle down. Children, by and large, have a really difficult time settling down on their own. They literally don't have the brain-body connections yet and the nervous system capabilities to do that. They need us to partner with them in those moments to help them do that. So that's just one example, but that's that gives a flavor of how I approach those things. Yeah, love it. And final question from Charlene in Sydney. I think this is an important one too. My children watch me go through an abusive relationship. Since then, I've remarried and I'm in a happy relationship, but my children go quiet when we question them when they misbehave and they don't answer us. How do we help them know that my now husband is nothing like what they experienced and that they are safe now? Oh boy, what a good question. And um, kudos to this parent for asking the question and be willing, being willing to examine um, this. 
I think it takes time to build trust, right? Especially when kids have been through the trauma of witnessing um, abuse. So I don't know how long this relationship has been going on, but it, it takes time and it takes consistent modeling, consistent opportunities for these children to see that this new adult figure in their home responds to things in very different ways and is not going to, you know, have the same reaction that the previous, the, the other parent did. I think that this is um, a really lovely example of where some family counseling and some parent-child counseling work can be very, very helpful because a skilled family therapist, child and parent therapist will be able to help the parent be able to be open and honest and explore these things and talk with the children about things in a developmentally appropriate way, give some strategies for how they can build that trust and give the kids a safe container for talking about their fears, their concerns, their, you know, what's gone on. And so I think um, there's a lot of things that we can do as parents on our own. And sometimes there's, you know, really important times and places to get some professional help. And this is a great example where a skilled therapist can really help with not only processing and helping kids navigate some of that previous trauma, but helping this new family unit come together and function in a really healthy way. Love that. All the stuff that you've got, it's about positivity and kindness and support and nourishing those relationships. I, I think that's so great. Uh, there are a bunch of ways to connect with Dr. Nicola. We'll link to all of these in the show notes. You can visit her website, drberkins.com, listen to her podcast, The Better Behavior Show, check out her book, Life Will Get Better, and follow her on Instagram at Dr. Nicole Berkins, as I hope all of you do. So again, all of that and more will be linked in the show notes. Dr. Nicole, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. This was great. Wow, how powerful was that? And we only got to about half of the questions I'd prepared. What an incredible amount of insights from Dr. Nicole Birkins to help us all raise strong children, protect our own mental well-being, and ultimately create a happier and more supportive household. If you enjoyed this episode and want more amazing content like this as soon as it's released, hit that subscribe button. And if you want to help more people find the show so they can win the day and learn from conversations like this one, give the show a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. Win the Day with James Whitaker is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Again, the right bit of inspiration can completely change the trajectory of someone's life. So if there is a friend or loved one out there who needs to hear this episode, share it with them right now. That's all for this episode. Remember to get out there and win the day. Until next time, onwards and upwards, always. Always.